Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Well, good morning. Uh, another strange way to kind of get back together again. We are saddened not to be together, um, but we're thankful for rain. Uh, and I can say with a true heart, though, that we miss being together. Uh, we're sorry both to not be able to join together around the word, but also to share in Christ at the Lord's Supper. Um, so we are understanding our circumstances being that they are, and we move forward in gladness in hope that not only will our circumstances be better, but that Christ will return and all will be made right in him. So I uh, would appreciate your prayers as we, even as elders, attempt to try to understand how to best navigate this zone and wisely discern the path forward for our church and uh, how God would desire us to obey and to do wisely and love our neighbors. So let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 4. We've read uh, a lot of it already, the first three chapters. Now we're kind of making the turn. And what we're going to do this morning is we'll read the first six verses, and then we will pray together, and then we'll work through this to understand, hear from our Lord, and consider how to grow in Christ. So let's go ahead. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. This is God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, just as you were called, I'm um, sorry, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we approach your word today together with sincere desire to know it, to obey it, because you are worthy of every part of us. Lord, you deserve our mind, our heart, our desires, our work, our obedience. In short, you are worthy. We bring honor and glory and praise to your name because you are worthy. Please help us as we take time to look through these verses in the Bible. Give us strength to understand you, to grasp your immense love, and to respond to you in faith. Lord, we, we pray that you would cut us deeply. Use your word to shape us into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, work in us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I attended a small, pretty conservative Christian college in Wisconsin. Um, I love my time there. So grateful for my education, my experience, my Christian growth there. Um, but probably one of my most enjoyable parts of being there was playing uh, intercollegiate soccer. Um, I love this part. I'd played on several different teams growing up, both as a child and then through high school. But uh, none of them came close to, my, close to my opportunity and experience playing intercollegiate soccer. Um, you know, we, we, it was a very good team that I was a part of. We had won our region and many times and then also went to the national uh, title and when we had won that. No thanks to me necessarily. I didn't start until I was a, a junior and a senior, but 
The truth is the success of the team wasn't what made it so great for my experience. It was actually the unity and the camaraderie of the team, being part of this togetherness and uniting around common interests, but also then a common goal of moving forward. Now, you've probably all either seen or at least heard of, remember the Titans, you know, this football movie, that team bonds together closely around the tough love of a, a harsh coach who cares a lot about his team, and they grow and they get better and they have success. Well, it was, it was kind of like that because we were playing soccer. Every August, we'd come back early for all the rest of the students, and it would be like two weeks or three weeks of grueling practices, long days. I mean, everyone was in bed by 8 o'clock. We were so sore and tired, um, getting woken up early. Uh, I mean, it was, it was just a bonding experience of, of difficulty in a sense of a trial. But yet through those things, each year, the new freshman class coming in, it would be a whole new opportunity to come together again in unity and to understand what was expected by our coaches and what it took to actually be a good team as we played together. Through all this, of course, we're encouraged by our coaches to stay close to each other, to have each other's backs, um, to, to build team unity. And I remember in all that, that one year we decided the way that we would do this as kind of a, a mark of that was to all shave our heads together. So uh, it didn't matter who you were, they all, we all shaved our heads together. Um, and this was cool for a while. Uh, but I got old quick because we were playing soccer in Wisconsin in the fall, which means it's very cold. Um, so that was one way we did it. Uh, another year, instead of you know cutting our hair, we let our hair grow out. Um, but I don't mean the hair on top of our head. I mean the hair on our upper lips alone. Um, see, our, our school was pretty conservative and had a rule against beards and goatees, but for some reason, you were allowed to have a mustache. And so we all decided uh, at whatever level of maturity we were at, we were all going to grow mustaches. So instead of cutting our hair, we all grew these out. As you can imagine, a group of 23 young men, some were really just still just past the age of puberty, um, trying to grow out their mustaches together. It was a painful sight for the most part. Um, but really, what were we trying to accomplish? What were we trying to do? Unity, an opportunity to kind of be together and unite around something like this. Uh, what, what united us really kind of uh, in that moment was the fact that we were known as the guys in the soccer team that had those creepy mustaches. And that's kind of how we were known. Needless to say, the administration of the school came and begged us and pleaded us, please, to get rid of these mustaches for the sake of the school's reputation as we would travel and work in other places. So we did, and we, we unified in other ways as well. All kinds of stuff unites people, though. All kinds of things, both silly things and serious things as well. Uh, but I want to kind of get at this idea and ask about unity. What, what kind of things bring people together? Or what, what kind of things keep people together and, and allow them to have unity and overcome differences and go along together and get along for some amount of time? I asked this uh, a little while ago to some of our community group leaders a few weeks ago, and I, I kind of asked them, what brings a community together or keeps them together? And the answers were probably like you can, you can kind of imagine, you know, things like common goals, similarities in lifestyles or experiences, common beliefs and maybe in a philosophy of life or ideals. Sometimes it's like promises that are made between people, that they will keep those promises, and that's kind of what keeps their feet to the fire. Even blood, as we know, I mean, by that I mean family, they, they will stay together because of some of those family ties. But most communities really only thrive if their members are committed 
to that community for one reason or another, to what it stands for or what's in it for them, the benefits that come to them. Um, and, and none of them would ever say they're looking for a disunified group. Uh, that, that wouldn't be something that their people are going after. M many of them understand in these communities and structures that they want unity for their group, oneness, so that they can have cohesion. They know that they need this to survive, and they need this if they're going to be able to work anything out and, and be effective at whatever their community is supposed to be or do. So I ask the question, is Christian community the same? You know, does the church need something to rally around, to keep it together, programs to kind of make sure we keep on the same thing and make sure our banner truths keep getting put out in front of us all the time and make sure that we can be unified in this way? What is it that unites a Christian congregation? Today we're going to look to see that Paul cares a great deal about unity, that it's a major, major mark of who the church is. So what is it then that unites us as a Christian congregation? I think that most of you could probably answer that question pretty simply. You'd understand it's, it's that we are God's people. It's that we are under our King, Jesus, and we are made so by the power of the Holy Spirit who works in us. Paul has made this really clear, if you remember, really in the whole first three chapters of Ephesians. He's kind of pulled the curtain back to show us who we are, how we were made this way, and what continues to hold us together. He's told us this and, and, and said how you've been blessed by God and Jesus Christ and how the Spirit is at work within you, building you even to the point where he would call us members of the household of God. We are put together, Jews and Gentiles, as the building or dwelling place of God. But, I mean, we also know that when Christ redeemed us, we were not immediately, completely, physically ushered into the presence of God for all eternity. I mean, here we are having this live stream, like in real time and space and stuff's going on, knowing that these realities are true, and yet having to still deal with the curse, still living in this life together. We understand that not all has come immediately true. We are still here, still experiencing life on earth with other people. We don't necessarily feel any different. Sometimes we do, but we, we know the truth. And this doesn't mean that it isn't real. Uh, it means that this is God's will for us, that we would grow up in Christ and that we would be his witnesses, both to those around us, but also, as we learned earlier, to the heavenly rulers and authorities. To, to, and again, all of this is to the praise of his glory. In short, we are encouraged to live in this short existence that we get, 70 or maybe 80 years by strength. And we understand we get that with our eyes on the prize of Christ, who by the Spirit's guarantee will be ours for sure. But Paul, again, is not some sort of um, mystic that kind of lives with his head in the clouds. He's a, he's, his, again, his version of Christianity, what he's proposing, is real. And it has to function in the everyday life of going to work, getting along with others, earning a living, dealing with life here as we grow in Christ-likeness. In chapter 4, Paul turns from explaining who we are and who God is to what we ought to do in light of these truths. 
Look at the beginning of verse 1 here in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you. Now before we get even into the content, we need to recognize that the, there is an important bridge that Paul is using here, that he is creating between the first half of Ephesians and the second half. It's an important bridge between all that Paul has said in these first three chapters and all he is about to say in these last three chapters. For him, what's to come, chapters 4 through 6, are natural outworkings of chapters 1 through 3. This is why we must never begin to counsel one another or ourselves with rules and commands alone. This is devastating. If we were only to ever have chapters 4 through 6, we would miss the gospel. It would be moralism. It would be for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But instead, there's an important place not only for commands, but also for our understanding of who we are in the gospel, our identity in Jesus Christ. Our identity drives, then, our actions. Our actions doesn't tell us who we are, necessarily. We understand that our actions will prove who we really are, which is James's whole point to make sure that we're very careful. But we also understand the way that Paul is setting this up, that the things that we have received from Christ should lead us then into the things that we do, the way that we live. Brother or sister, I just wonder, are there ever times that you find yourself just kind of maybe grinning and bearing it and saying, this is, this is kind of the way it is, the best is, I know I'm supposed to do this thing, so I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do my best at it. It's my duty. God's given me the command. I'm supposed to do it. So I'm just going to do my best to, to make it happen. You know, at all costs, I'll do my best and try my hardest. I think there's a great danger in this. We need to be really careful. We, we, we subtly begin to believe that God did the work of salvation, that he's the one that bought us and placed us in this family. But again, by way of practice, we begin to believe that we do the work of sanctification of making ourselves holy, of us by ourselves being able to do chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians without the realities of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Even the way that Paul sets this up is instructive for us, and we must make sure that we both speak to others the truth and ourselves that our reliance is on God. Again, we know this from Galatians 3. Remember that you know we, we began our walk with Christ by the Spirit, but also that we are to grow up in Christ or be sanctified by the Spirit. It is not now by the flesh, Paul says, or not by us doing our best to figure it out. So as we begin to hear Paul's exhortation, his urging us to obey, we, can rem we must remember actually that this is based on something that we can do, but only because God has done something in us. Uh, this keeps us humbly depending on the one who continues to grow us up in Christ. So in verse 1 he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, this is pretty straightforward. Paul has actually used this phrase before. He's drawing on material that we already know. He has been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, for his Lord, and for the love of the world, that they might know the gospel. Because he won't stop preaching the gospel and telling Christians to live in light of it because of his love for God and his love for his neighbor. Paul is a prisoner of the Lord or for the Lord, it says here. He has sacrificed his own well-being, think about this, for the sake of his love for Christ 
and for the sake of his love for his neighbor, that they would know this Christ. He doesn't need to, but on this basis, he appeals to them, saying, hey, I am legit. I actually have affections for you and for God to the point that I'm willing to sacrifice myself and to go to prison. And here I am writing to you. He says, I urge you, therefore, as, as a prisoner for the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul urges them, pleads with them to walk out their Christian calling. Now, he's not asking them to attend a lot of big Christian events. He's not asking them to do a lot of spiritual good in short bursts and get a lot of those things done so you can kind of rack up some points, uh, some Christian points. Actually, he uses this word, walk. It's not a new word to us, but we kind of understand almost from the beginning. It's an idea of regular, everyday, not running, you know, not event-driven, but all of life walking. It's a lifestyle, a way, Old English calls it a conversation. Like that's the what is the thing that kind of characterizes the way that you live your life. And it says it's a lifestyle of doing. Well, doing what? He says doing your calling. And he's not talking about some sort of specific thing where, you know, that, that's a kind of a, a, a catchphrase or a buzzword that people use to kind of say, I realize my calling and what I'm really good at and the thing that I want to do more than anything else in the world. And it's very niche. And that's where I, I spend my time in really fulfilling my calling. He's not talking about that kind of a calling. He's talking about the Christian call to come out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ. The call from Christ to be his own. He's referring to the work of God to redeem a person and a people and rescue them from destruction to be his own people. We know this from Ephesians 1.18. Paul prays, remember this, that we would know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You and I are called to be his people, his church, his body. Paul is saying that we are to walk it out, to live out this Christian calling. He's urging us to be the people that we actually are in Christ Jesus. But there's this wonderful word that I, that I left out here. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, if you look at that phrase, it's a little confusing, but I want you to follow me for a minute. The English wording here almost looks like the standard of worth is the calling to which you've been called. Like that's what you're supposed to live up to. And that would be great. Like live up to what God has done in you and called you to. But that's not exactly what Paul is saying here. His basic structure, if you can just follow me for a minute, is saying you should worthily walk your calling. Like the calling is the thing that you ought to walk. And the way in which you ought to do the verb, the walking, is worthily like in a worthy manner, that's how you ought to walk. It could be broken down even more. We could say something like, you should walk your calling. You, Christian, I urge you to walk your calling. But he's careful to show us that living as a Christian is not just like a person who gets set on the Christian path and says, okay, it's automatic from here on out. You're done. Just, just stay on this path. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to strive. You don't have to do anything like that. Just, just stay on this path and it'll all work out for you. Paul is saying instead, pay attention. Don't walk aimlessly. You are going to strive or walk worthily. Our ESV Bible translation says, walk in a worthy manner. That's right, in a worthy manner. But to what degree are we talking about, Paul? 
He's saying that we ought to walk out this Christian life in a way that understands all that it has been given, from, all from what, chapters 1 through 3, in a way that strives for Christ-likeness, the fullness of God, he's told us. Remember, he prayed for us in that way, really for Christian maturity. Again, though, what does that mean? Well, he's, he's going to spend the next three chapters telling us what that looks like, what that means. A lot of specifics, helping us understand what a Christian calling looks like and how to walk it out in a worthy manner. But for now, he is going to begin by making sure we understand the nature of this people. A short list of moral graces you see right here at the beginning, attributes of a Christian and how they are to interact with each other. Look at verse 1 and how it goes into verse 2 and 3. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, does, do, do any of those attributes ring a bell? Have you, have you heard them somewhere before? Gentleness, patience, love peace? You probably know where I'm going. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul is urging them to walk in a manner that is characterized by the work of the Holy Spirit. He is telling them, this is the fruit of walking with God in your calling and acting according to the Spirit's work in your life. He tells them to walk with all humility and gentleness. These two go together if you look at this. And we understand this. Seeing ourselves in a proper perspective before God and as creatures, we recognize and it helps us not to think too highly of ourselves. And then rightly to operate in a true submissiveness before God, understanding that our rank is very lowly, understanding who it's, it's really the opposite of someone who thinks highly of themselves, someone that would be proud or arrogant, an attitude that although we may never say it, it thinks of itself as though they have, more than other people at least, arrived in certain areas. Again, we wouldn't say that out loud, but you know, our attitude is such that we recognize that, well, I've kind of made it here they're not quite as good as me, and, and, and the whole idea that goes along with that. So this thing, it's a characteristic that causes someone instead to properly check their motives every time they move into another thing, as they realize their propensity for pride, understanding that they automatically will always put themselves at the top of the stack. This is that checks that, to be careful to encourage others, and never look for the praise of man. So he talks about this. The next thing he says, though, is patience. I mean, what a terrible thing to say, Paul. Why would you go there? I mean, don't you know that I am a humble person, but I don't have time for all those people who aren't yet? Like, don't you get it, Paul? Why would you bring this up at this point? I mean, maybe you guys are not like me, um, and patience comes really easily to you. Maybe you can patiently deal with others who aren't doing what you want them to do in the way that you want them to do it, in the time frame that you want them to do it, that you wanted it done in. I mean, this, this little word is a knife to me because if I'm honest, I, I tend to think that my, my impatience is like a good thing. It's like we want to get the good things and the right stuff and the productive things done well, and this person over here is messing it up. They're making it harder. They're taking longer. They're not doing it right. 
And I realized that what Paul is saying is that impatience is actually selfish and arrogant. And it pushes against the idea that we ought to put someone else in front of ourselves. And again, this isn't about being a person uh, who just waits around for others either. Don't, don't, don't confuse this. Patience doesn't mean that you're willing to wait in line. That's not a patient person. I mean, this might be part of it, but it's easy to wait for a long time and not have one ounce of patience within you. Paul says that we ought to interact with another person in a way that is, is patient, even despite their sin or their weaknesses, their foibles and immaturity. It's the same attitude that understands that God is at work in his church, just like he's at work in you. He's at work in his church, and I can allow him then to work at his pace in his ways with my brothers and sisters. There's a humble patience that allows us to see one another and allow God to do that work, and we work with God as he works with them and with us, understanding ourselves in our proper rank. But that's not all. I mean, the last one in verse 2 is a big one and even more direct. He says, bearing with one another in love. Now, this goes even further than having the, the attitude of patience. This one talks about endurance. Now, the word you're going to see there is a good one, to bear with one another, and it's right. But I think you might get the feel a little bit more if I gave you a literal idea. This is the literal translation, enduring one another in love. Oof enduring one another in love. That's right. It's the same word that Paul uses in many other places to talk about enduring suffering. I mean, this is harsh language almost that we would say, this is how you're to treat one another, endure them. But this time he says it differently. He says that you are to be enduring one another in love. This addition makes it completely different. It makes it clear that this is not just a bemoaning tolerance with another person. There is something here that we have to understand because sometimes we think about being patient with someone or enduring someone as something heroic. Like, we did pretty good here. We endured that person. They're super annoying, but I made it through and I was able to be strong and put up with this person. But I certainly don't have to love them or like them or do anything like that. Just endure them. Paul makes it very different here. He says, enduring one another in love. It's an endurance that draws its character from the love of Christ. I mean, we can barely put up with our families, let alone the whole body of Christ. Think about Jesus being willing to endure the entire, his entire body over all of the ages. I mean, this God has patience and enduring with love. And so not only do we want to exemplify him, we draw the same thing from him. That's one of the reasons Paul prays that we would have the strength to comprehend the height and depth and width and length and, and the, the extreme nature, the vastness of the love of Christ. If we can understand that, we will start to understand what we can dip into to love one another. That's what he calls us to today, the high calling of loving one another, enduring one another. By way of application, I just wonder if any of us don't take those last two words very seriously. I'll be the first to admit I often am willing to tolerate people, willing to endure them as painful as it might be. 
I really realized, though, that um, it's the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. It's pride. It's showing how great I am instead of doing it out of love, both for God and for that person. I'll ask you, do you tolerate people? Do you put up with them, other Christians, and just deal with them as though somehow you're better for it? It's good to tolerate them, but do you endure people like Jesus did? Do you endure people with love, one that would want them to continue to progress in their being more like Jesus? And this is a very different story. I have to admit that my normal response is toleration, but rarely is it with the end to love them out of the love I've experienced in Christ. Guys, this has to be our response to one another, to be willing to endure one another with love. Let us endure as Christ has endured with us in love and continues to show this love. In verse 3, we get to the high point of his exhortation, though. Our walking worthy should be characterized by being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, this is actually where he's been headed the whole time. Think about all that he's said so far. All of these different things have to do with interactions between believers. He makes this clear by saying this. He's building to this point to help us understand the posture of one who is going to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. He urges us to be eager in this pursuit. The, the word is like, like unto zealous, that we are zealous to keep this unity of the Spirit. And notice that he does not say eager to create unity. That's, that's not ours to do. It's actually impossible. You couldn't do it from the beginning anyway. Remember that it is God who has done this. No, he says it is for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That means that he has already done it, that he has already created this unity in himself. He has already made us united in the church, in the body of Christ, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. This is really like the whole paradigm of Ephesians, right? I mean, here's who we are, here's who you guys are, and then now go be who you are by the power of the one who made you to be who you are. It's the, this is who you are, now go be who you are. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What about that last word, the bond of peace? Um, that, that's the idea, of, give you a word picture, that's the idea of buttoning the two sides of your jacket together, the bond that holds them together. That's the idea of muscles being attached to bones by a ligament, which holds them and fastens them to it. In this way, we maintain our unity within the arena of Christian peace together. And we understand that is not easy, and it's not something that is coming out of the flesh. That's the last thing that we want to do. Um, peace is hard work. It's a result of patience and humility and gentleness and love and endurance, and it is truly a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it is in this that we see the unity of the Spirit expressed in the local church, Christ's body. Now, at this point, Paul turns to give us, and especially his original readers, a theological basis for what he has just said. He, we kind of think of usually someone would be like, okay, here's all the, the reasons why you ought to go do this thing. Paul front loads it and says, go do this. But now he's going to give us a theological basis for which he can stand on and say, go do this. You and I might ask, as they did, 
why should we be unified? I mean, does it really matter? I mean, if Christ is saving us, why does it matter? The answer here from Paul is an emphatic, yeah, it matters a great deal. He enters into a strange but powerful lists of, list of truths. He is going to rest, excuse me, <coughs> he is going to rest his case for unity on the nature of the Godhead and how he interacts with those who have been called by him. He says this, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We'll start at the top. One body. There aren't two or three or a thousand different bodies of Christ. It's Christ. There's not two or three thousand different Christs. There is Christ and his body. There is only one true church because they are all connected to the one head, to Jesus. He told us, if you look at Ephesians 2.16, he already told us this, and might reconcile us both, talking about Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, how did he do this? How did he apply that work of Christ? We all weren't there when Jesus died. How does he do this? We know it is through, as he says next, the one spirit. Listen to Ephesians 2.18. He's talking about Jew and Gentile again and their access to the God, the Father. In verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What binds us together that makes us one people is the work of the one spirit, God's Holy Spirit. But he goes even further to tie it to their own experience. So he's talked theology. He's talked about this corporate body. But now he's going to talk about their own experience let me read verse 4 again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, your experience, the thing that God has done in your life. This is the hope that is given to us in our salvation, in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, as our Reconciler, as the one who gives us new life. This is our salvation that we hope for and long to see, and we expectantly await, confidently knowing that he will save us one day. He has already done it. He is saving us, and one day it will be complete and ultimate. When he finally delivers us from sin and gives us resurrected bodies to be eternal, full life in him at his coming. Paul has already spoken of this in Ephesians 1, verse 12 verse 18, chapter 2, verse 12. I'm just going to read verse 18 of chapter 1. See this idea of the one hope. I'll just read at 18 for you. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Your hope is in Christ and you have one hope. It's not as though someone's going to happen over here and this guy's hope is this. This guy's going to get um, all these different things when he goes to get his mansion someday. And this guy's going to, no, 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 no. We all have this one hope in Christ and all that is bound up in his person. All of these bound together in oneness. There isn't a hope for the Jews and a different hope for the Gentiles. It is one hope. He goes on in verse 5, you take a look there, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, we've already seen the Holy Spirit mentioned, right? The third person of the Trinity. 
But here we actually get the second person, the Lord Jesus. It's a, it's a, it's a short, curious, poetic little saying. One Lord, it's only one who, from whom this church is redeemed, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we have a fascinating tie to faith and baptism. I'll ask you, how does one enter into the Lord Jesus Christ in our experience? Is it not I enter the new man or the body of Christ through faith in him? Is it not also through baptism into Christ, Romans 6? Yes, this little phrase is packed. I mean, packed with theology. We could probably preach on this verse alone, and it would be well worth our time. Uh, But for, for the purposes today, we need to see that Christian baptism and Christian faith in the Lord Jesus is an exclusive teaching of the church of Christ because it is his teaching. It is true only because he's at the head of it. We need to see that the church of Christ is the only one who's been given authority to bind in heaven and on earth based on the exclusive claim on the one Lord Jesus Christ. And when he called people to obey the gospel, to live in light of it, this is only because we have our one Lord. Our one faith, our one baptism rests solely on what Peter's confession says is, you are the Christ. You, Jesus of Nazareth, are the Messiah. This is why truth is so important to the Christian church. These teachings support our unity as believers and are cause for us to be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Now, lastly, in verse 6, he says, One God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What a claim. I mean, he rounds out the Trinity. He already talked about the Spirit, talked about Lord Jesus, and he's going to anchor it by talking about God the Father. And shows that all of creation, every, again, we've talked about this before. Go ahead, think about any category you want to. It's all created. There's only one category that has not been created. And that is the one being God himself, expressed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is no one else, no thing else that was not created by the one who was father of all. We understand then that this proclaims his sovereignty over all things. He holds them all together through the Son, Jesus, of course, but by his proclamation and sovereignty, he is over all. There is nothing in the universe that is not his. Glory be to God. It is on the basis, then, of the one God expressed in Father, Son, and Spirit that God has worked in his people. One hope. Again, think about that working. God, the one God, the way that he works in his people, one hope, one faith, one baptism, in which he calls for us then to live, guess what, as one, unity. Paul is urging us, therefore, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Ephesian believers understood and probably knew this second section, verses 4, 5, and 6, they knew exactly what he was talking about. This probably wasn't brand new information for them. What was earth-shattering for them was actually verses 1, 2, and 3. That he was calling them in real life, not just in theory, to actually be united. To have their character changed by the Holy Spirit who lived in them so that they could put up with each other in love. So they could be humbled. So they patiently wait for one another. 
to gently handle one another, caring more about what Jesus cares about than what they own, what the things that they care, care about. It is on the basis of this God that he is building his church. Paul probably, again, isn't telling them anything new, but the fact that he, in, in verses four through six, but verses one through three are coming as a real hard hammer for them. Likewise to us, uh, as we understand, this understanding of what we're really called to is way bigger than just trying to get two groups that are very different into the same room. We're talking about a life change that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working itself out in the building up of the body. And we'll see that as we go into next week, understanding how this body builds itself up in love, the gifts that God gives to the church, and how we are all mutually working for the building up of this body in unity. Why, though, did he need to tell them this? I mean, it's a good thing. It's a good Christian teaching. Why would he say this, though? Remember chapter 2 for a moment. Remember their situation. He just told them in chapter 2 that Jew and Gentile distinctions have been removed by Christ, who's the one who took these distinctions away because in him the new man was created. Faith in Christ is what brings them together into one people, not obedience to the Mosaic law. The hostility has been removed by Jesus the battle has been won. They have been granted peace. Get, get this. There's a battle. Jesus won it. We have peace with God. And now we have unity and peace with one another by the Holy Spirit's work. And he's saying, now listen, you be eager to maintain the peace of the Spirit. They're still here, though. They understand that's uh, you know, not just a theory. They're going to actually have to do the work of obedience and dependence and faith in God to do this. They have all kinds of reasons that they don't really want to dwell together in unity, but all of these reasons and all of these desires, guess what, are not in step with the Holy Spirit. They're fleshly. They're their own assumptions, their own desires, and they actually tend towards division, uh, hurting one another, being concerned mostly about number one, instead of concerning ourselves with the rest of the people that God has made a part of his body. Why does Paul have to say this in the letter to Ephesians? Because he knows that no matter what scenario we find ourselves in, we are tempted to live as for ourselves, creatures that want to be their own king. As one sister reminded me last week, we continue to tend towards loving and building our own kingdoms. We love our kingdoms. They seem to serve us pretty well. But this is work of the flesh. So, if this is what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, that we are to walk worthily of our calling, to be eager to maintain this unity that we have in spirit, what does that look like for you and me? What, what does it mean for you to go back tomorrow or today after you we're done doing this live stream? What does it mean for, for us to actually be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? I think that you can probably fill in some of your own blanks here, and you probably are already thinking of some of them. But I will offer three specific applications, so hang on. First, ladies. I don't always understand the interworkings of a woman's mind and heart, but the truth is I've observed the clashes that happen between ladies in our own body. 
How are you doing in this area? Are you tolerating one another? Or are you in humility thinking of others better than yourselves? Are you eager to maintain the unity that you have in the spirit with these other ladies in our church? Or will something someone said perturb you and that you'll just kind of close that person off to any relationship that you might have with them in Christ? Or is it easier just to ignore the things that are difficult, have your own thoughts about what it means to follow Christ, and I don't have to do it with that person? I'd encourage you, if this is true, repent. This is division. This is not right. This is not loving for one another. I would encourage you to not hold your own rights more important than others, but lovingly endure with love your sisters that you are part of in this body. Men, you are not excluded, since not only are you the leaders of your homes, but often the main culprits of this kind of stuff. I'll turn to you. If you and your spouse are Christians, I would ask you, are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit between you? Think about this union. What level of disunity are you willing to tolerate in your marriage? Because if, if, if we're honest, oftentimes the love that we have for our spouses can be a battle zone, can be difficult, can be hard, can feel like war sometimes, and it can kind of break us down to the point that we become de- complacent and we live in defeat and to the point where we're like, you know, we're going to have this disunity in our marriages and we're going to have to live with it. It'll be fine. We already made this covenant, so I'll, I'll keep with the promise. But, I mean, I have no unity with my wife at all. It's so hard. Someone or both someones are often wrong and in sin. And guess what? We all have rights, don't we? Um, and, 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 you know, my rights aren't being upheld. And so if that's true, I have the right to kind of hold us against the other person. Can I remind you that Paul tells us not about our rights here? He doesn't say that, guys. But rather, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, who you and I say dwells in us. What we are doing is not in step with walking in the Spirit. He tells us about patience, about humility, about gentleness. Get this, about enduring your wife in love. That's not in some sort of bemoaning, tolerant, like, well, I got to endure this marriage. No, 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 no. This is far different, empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit who resides in you. This is, strangely, just get this, possible. It really is. Easy? No. The work of the Holy Spirit, though, to transform our marriages, our lives together, is possible. So I'll ask you, are you willing to work at your marriage? Are you willing to humbly deal with your differences and struggles and fights and sin that you have between each other? Are you willing to bear up or endure one another with love? This has to be a characteristic of ours. Is our, is our marriage, are, are our marriages characterized by unity or are they places of defeated toleration? We'll just continue on. Brothers and sisters, because this obviously affects sisters as well. Strive for unity. Continue in the spirit to work towards this thing in obedience, knowing that this is, this is the will of God. You want to know if God wills for that to happen or not? I can tell you. Absolutely it is. Does that mean that it's easy or automatic? No. But he has told us here to strive for unity. Remember who you are in Christ. Depend on the Holy Spirit asking him to produce this fruit in you. 
I'll turn lastly then to teenagers and children. Thought I was letting you go. No way. Teenagers and children, are you practicing love? Are you practicing endurance? Are you practicing patience? Both with your friends, your Christian friends, adults that you might think not too highly of who are Christians? Um, maybe your brothers and sisters, literally in your family, who are Christians as well. If you're a Christian, these are the things that ought to characterize your life as you interact with other Christians. Brothers and sisters, as we consider this whole, we are called to live out our calling in a worthy manner, one that measures up to the bountiful blessings given to us in Christ Jesus, all of what he told us in 1, 2, and 3. And this doesn't look like a disgruntled employee who just deals with his employer and he says, I got to do it. You know, that's where I get my paycheck from. This is a joyful characterization of a relationship that humbly lives with one another in thanksgiving to the one who made this body of believers and looks for their betterment, always building up. Let us therefore be eager to maintain this unity in our families, in our Christian friendships, in our church body, and in the pursuit of the truth. Let's do this together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Spirit's work in us who has created the unity in himself. Lord, we are thankful for all that you have done, and we stand back amazed when we consider all that you're able to do. We pray for unity. We pray that you would work in us in ways that we cannot fathom, that you would heal relationships, bring us unity. That doesn't mean easy. That means there's still going to be sin. There's still going to be struggle. There's still going to even be seemingly like warfare between us at some points. Lord, would you teach us to do so with patience and humility and gentleness and, and continue to work for peace? Lord, please help us to endure one another with love. Maybe that doesn't mean friendship right away. Lord, I think that's a, a side blessing that you may give. But Lord, help us to love one another because of Jesus Christ. We love you and ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.